you know, we barely have scratched the surface, and so this is just an opportunity for us to look a little bit further at what we can learn. And um, we have a very important topic this evening. We're going to be talking about Daniel's worst nightmare, and this weekend we're going to be unpacking Daniel chapter 8 and 9 and looking at the teaching that is commonly known as the rapture. So um, the 70-week the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 is usually interpreted in light of the rapture and, and, and uh, those type of end-time events. We're going to see what the Bible says. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 8. And I think that as we study together tonight Daniel chapter 8 and even tomorrow night when we get into Daniel chapter 9, I think you're, go- you're going to agree with me that these two chapters, these two visions, are, are clearly linked together. And so we have to understand them together. You know, we get into trouble when we start taking one part of the Bible and interpreting it without its context, don't we? Um, they, uh, there's a the saying that, that goes something like this, a verse taken out of context is a, a pretext. You can say it this way, a text out of context is a pretext. How's that? And um, it's, it's a, you can really make it say whatever you want it to say, right? And so we're going to be looking at the context of Daniel chapter 9 so that hopefully it'll be very clear when we come to understanding it, what it means and also what it can't mean. I don't know about you, but I think you're here because you want to know what the Bible says, Amen. You're not here because you're just interested in what the popular teachings are, what the theologians say. You want to know the Bible for yourself. That's, that's, that's what I want. I want to understand God's Word for myself. I don't want to take what other people say about it. I want to see it for myself. And, and I hope that one thing I can share with you is as we study these chapters, I hope that you can see what it says for yourselves, that you can be satisfied that you understand what it is talking about. Now, there are some passages here that we're not going to have time to go into um, complete exhaustive detail as we explain them, as we study them. Some things we'll have to leave for future nights, right? Um, But there's a lot that we can unpack in just the short time that we have together tonight. I know I believe, and I think that if you were here through the Unlocking Prophecy series last fall, I think you would agree with me that we are living in the last days of earth's history. The Bible's pretty clear about that. When we study Daniel chapter 2, we're going to review it here in just a minute. When we study Daniel chapter 7, when we read what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, we believe that Jesus is coming soon, and that the time of the end, you might say it, is upon us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're setting dates and we're, 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 we've decided that, you know, that, that we only have a few more years or Jesus is going to come at a certain time. No, we just believe He's coming soon. Jesus even says, behold, I come quickly, right? And that's the, that's the anticipation that we have as we've studied prophecy together. Now, we remember that when Jesus came the first time, right, when Jesus came the first time, his own people weren't ready to receive him. Isn't that true? They just weren't ready. They, they were looking for a Messiah that was, was going to re, uh, overthrow the Romans and, and free the Jewish nation from their bondage to another nation. They were going to be the kingdom of kingdoms, and Jerusalem would be the capital of the world, and that's what they wanted. In fact, what, the reason that they had these expectations was because of a misunderstanding of Bible prophecy. A what? A misunderstanding of Bible prophecy. It wasn't that they didn't study the prophecies. 
It's just that when they studied it, they came to conclusions that weren't warranted in the Scriptures. For example, in the Old Testament, we do find predictions of Jesus' first coming, don't we? We find, for example, Isaiah chapter 53 would be one that comes to mind, wouldn't it? He comes as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears was dumb. There was no beauty in him that we should desire him. All these descriptions of Jesus. But is that what the priests and the Pharisees of Jesus' day were reading? When they looked for a Messiah? No, because they actually took passages from the Old Testament that, that, that predict the final restoration of all things in God's eternal kingdom, and they tried to apply it to His first coming, overlooking all of the teachings that they should have seen in the Jewish sanctuary service of the lambs coming and being offered as innocent sacrifices. They looked instead at the, at the prophecies of Jesus coming as King of Kings and, and the, the, the new earth being recreated and Jerusalem being the center of peace and prosperity. And they applied, listen to me carefully, they applied the prophecies of Jesus' second coming to His first coming. That's what messed them up. Now, I think it's just, it's, it's, just, it's just not reasonable to assume that if the devil figured it worked that well once, he might not try something like that again, don't you think? You see, we not only want to study prophecy, we want to be careful that we rightly apply the prophecies, right? And so, in our studies uh, this weekend, we're going to be looking at uh, Daniel chapter 9, 8 and 9, very carefully. I, I speak of them as one prophecy because I think, and I'll try to show this to you as we go on tonight and tomorrow night, that they are one prophecy. But as we study this prophecy, I, I think it's very important that we make sure we're applying the prophecies of Jesus' first coming to His first coming and His second coming to His second coming. Is that fair? Because I don't want to be caught in the same trap the Jews were caught, God's people were caught in, in His first coming, of studying the prophecies, but confusing between the first and the second advent. All right, well, let's begin with a little bit of a review, shall we? We remember that our first, um, our first nights we discussed the very primer, the very beginning, the ABCs of end-time prophecy that we found in Daniel chapter 2. Remember that? And in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream. He has a, 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 some sort of an amnesia incident where he can't remember the dream, but he knows it must have been important. He woke up, perhaps his heart pounding and his, his, uh, his, uh, his, his palms sweaty. He, he was having a nightmare of his own, right? And uh, he didn't know what it meant. He didn't even remember what it was. And you remember how the wise men couldn't interpret it. They couldn't, of course, even tell it to him. They said... What the king asked is very hard. The only one that could do that are the gods, and their dwelling is not with flesh. Well, they didn't know the God of heaven, did they? Because the God of heaven does dwell with flesh. In fact, he said to his people, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exodus 25 and verse 8. And so, so Daniel comes and has a prayer meeting with his three friends. Daniel receives a dream or a vision that night. He knows not only what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, but he tells the king what he was thinking about before he fell asleep. How do you like that? If there's any confirmation that uh, Nebuchadnezzar could have, that Daniel really was on to what he had dreamed, it was confirmed when he told him what he'd been thinking about before he fell asleep. And finally, he not only tell, told him his dream, he told him what it meant. That head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar himself, the kingdom of Babylon, the chest and arms of silver, the next kingdom that would follow after, that of Medo-Persia, the, the belly and thighs of Greece, that um, the legs of iron represented Rome, and... Um, 
feet part iron and part clay, and then at the end there was this stone cut out without hands that, that destroyed the image and filled the earth and became a great mountain. And Daniel explained that these four succession of empires that would take over that part of the world would be followed by a mixture of some nations strong and weak, the iron mixed with clay. And then that stone cut out without hands, he explained, was God's kingdom who would set up, God would set up an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, right? Daniel chapter 7, we looked. We looked at how the same prophecies were given the same kingdoms were depicted. This time, instead of metals, they were depicted as beasts or animals. And God made it very clear that the king or kingdom was represented by each of these animals. And uh, the first, a lion. The second, a bear. The third, a leopard. Again, representing Babylon and Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. We found, we studied together. And, and um, if, you, if you didn't get a hold of, the, if you weren't here during those nights, one thing you can do, if, you can either get some CDs or DVDs, or you can go online at unlockingprophecydalton.com, and you can listen or watch all of those messages for free. So you can just watch them online. Um, but we studied how, how this, this prophecy gave an additional um, detail that wasn't in Daniel chapter 2. It talked about what would happen after Rome. There would actually be another power during that time of the metal and clay mixed together. It wouldn't rule the whole earth as the others had, but it would be a power nonetheless. Let's just review here real quickly um, these empires. First of all, the head of gold, Babylon, 605 to 539 B.C., Second, we have Medo-Persia from 539 to 331 B.C., represented by the chest and arms of silver and, and the bear in Daniel chapter 7. Um, then, then followed by the kingdom of Greece from 338, uh, 331 down to 168 B.C. Um, this would be the, uh, the, the belly and thighs of brass in Daniel chapter 2, the, the leopard with four heads and four wings in Daniel chapter 7, followed by Rome, um, the legs of iron, and in Daniel 7, a great and dreadful beast. That Rome would be the longest lasting of all of these empires. Um, it would last from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D., um, uh, something a little over uh, 600 years, a long time uh, compared to the others. But what's interesting in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, we see that there's in Daniel chapter 2, we have these 10 toes, or the 10 divisions of Rome. On Daniel chapter 7, we have the 10 horns of the beast, right? You remember that? And then after that, those 10 horns, a little horn would arise, remember? Now, we would expect then that this would happen sometimes, sometime around uh, the, the beginning of the 6th century, because it was the beginning of the end of the 5th century that Rome d dissolved into its bar from its barbarian attacks, uh, 476 A.D., according to, to Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which is a, a classic. Um, but this little horn would arise, and together we studied, we studied 10 different, actually we studied 11 characteristics of the little horn. We won't go through all 11 of them tonight. But we discovered that the Bible is very, very clear. There would be this power that would succeed the Roman Empire, the pagan empire of Rome. That would be a persecuting power. It would be a different power. It would be a little power. It would come up among the other horns. It would uproot three horns. It would have, 
It would see with human eyes, it was described. It would speak great things against the Most High. It would, uh, it would in fact, persecute God's people, and it would be in power for three and a half years, or a time times the dividing of times. And again, we're summarizing here, aren't we? Because we went through all this in great detail, and we, as we studied Daniel 7 uh, together, we discovered that there's only one power in history that could possibly fit this criteria. And it's not an indictment against any people who were or a part of that system. But as pagan Rome fell, it, it became replaced by the Christian Roman Empire or the papal Roman Empire, a mixture of church and state that would hold power for that three and a half prophetic years, a time, times, and the dividing of times. We're going to look at that here this evening very briefly. Um, the time in a, a Jewish year only has 360 days, times two of them, uh, half, a half a time, 180 days, that comes to 1260. Now, I don't just pull this out of a hat, it's actually confirmed because this same time prophecy appears six times in the books of Daniel and Revelation. We've only looked at one of them so far, um, but it, it comes six times, and we notice that the, the last of those three horns that were uprooted by the little horn in 538 A.D., the Ostrogoths, um, that began the civil domination of the Church of Rome, which then would come to an end 1260 years later. What's 1260 plus 538? 1798. And you remember what happened in 1798. Napoleon's General Berthier marched into the Vatican. The, by the way, the, uh, the French Revolution was in full swing. France said there is no God, religion is a farce, and they decided to prove it. They marched right into the Vatican, right into St. Peter's Cathedral, and into at that time you could go, I suppose some people still can, but now you have to go all the way a mile through the Vatican Museum. But the Sistine Chapel is actually right next to the uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And in, Saint, in Sistine Chapel, that's where the Pope was praying and the soldiers marched past all the guards. They noisily clambered into the sanctuary there of the Sistine Chapel. They grabbed the Pope, and they hauled him off into captivity where he died in exile. France was trying to prove that there is no God. That's what they were trying to prove. What they ended up proving was the Church of Rome no longer had civil power. Pretty dramatically, wouldn't you say? And uh, this would clearly mark the end of the 1260 years from 538 when they uprooted the last of those three, uh, ten, three tribes they uprooted, three of the ten, and they, were, um, they ended in 1798. Now, Daniel 7 doesn't stop there. Daniel 7 continues with a story, with a picture of the judgment. The Son of God, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, the courts were seated, the books were open, judgment began. And in Daniel chapter 7, judgment is really good news. Because if you read in the last few verses of Daniel chapter 7, like 26 and 27, the judgment shall sit and take away the dominion from the little horn and give, the, give it to the people of the saints of the Most High. We tend to think today, I, I'm afraid, many Christians today think of judgment in a pejorative context negatively. But actually, Daniel saw judgment as very good. This was God making things right. This was God 
making the, 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 uh, the kingdoms of this earth, taking them from the, uh, the powers that opposed him and giving it to his very people. So that's sort of a little bit of a context, right, or review. And um, if you miss some of those nights, all I can say is, God bless you. That was probably really confusing the last couple minutes. <laughs> um, hopefully, hopefully it wasn't. Um, but but um, go back and, and you can listen to some of those, those sermons or get some of those handouts and we can help you with that. These are basic, basic understandings of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, which every Protestant, every Protestant would have held and at least until the beginning of the 19th century. Um, up to the mid-1800s, if you were a Protestant, you believed exactly what I just said, okay? So it's not that I came up with these ideas. You can read them. I have, I have a penchant for old books, and somehow I, I find that some of these early un- unanimous understandings of prophecy we're closer to what the scripture says. Sometimes we get too complicated for our own good. And um, I have a library where I, I love to read old books on prophecy. And um, I would challenge basically anyone to find a Protestant expositor of Daniel 2 or 7 that had a different view um, from what I just shared. It was basically unanimous in the Protestant world. Now, we move on to Daniel chapter 8. And Daniel chapter 8 um, begins to unpack other another vision, a new vision. So let's look in our Bibles in Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 1, all right? Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. Are you ready? You ready? We're going to study these, this prophecy together. I hope that it's clear as we come to the end of it today. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision... And it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Now, this is what begins to happen. Now, we we find that um, Daniel's prophecies up to this point have begun began with the time in which he was living and continued down until the time of the end. That's what we saw in Daniel chapter 2, right? Thou art this head of gold, you are this head of gold. And um, in the days of these kings, the Most High God will set up a kingdom which will never pass away, right? Daniel chapter 2 spanned from Daniel's time down to the time of the end. Um, Daniel chapter 7 did the same thing. Daniel chapter 8, we're going to see, does the same thing. By the way, what else do we know about Belshazzar, this king that he refers to? Any other interesting information about Belshazzar in the Bible? Okay, Daniel chapter 5 is the story of the fall of Babylon, right? And Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. He's the one that threw a party, and he actually commanded to take the holy vessels out of the temple of Jerusalem that had been captured in Jerusalem to pour the wine of Babylon into them and to party with them. At that time, a hand appeared on the wall. Can you imagine it? A hand appeared on the wall and began to write, and it wrote the following message, Mini, mini, to kill you farson. Nobody knew what it meant until Daniel. Imagine this, Daniel is still around. And Daniel is brought in as an old man now to read this writing, and sure enough, God, God revealed to him what it meant, and he said, 
your kingdom, your weight in the balances and found wanting, your kingdom is taken from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, this chapter 5 tells us, that very night, the city of Babylon fell to Cyrus, the Mede. So, by the way, we don't have time to get into it, but you remember how the story of Daniel 3 was picked up by the book of Revelation and, and made into an end-time prophecy? The story of Daniel chapter 5 is also. In the last days, spiritual Babylon pours its wine, its false teachings, into the vessels of the temple of Jerusalem, and probation closes. So that's a whole other study we have to get into as we, as we look at the um, prophecies of Revelation. So, Revel uh, Daniel chapter um, 8 begins in the very end of the Babylonian Empire, just before the time of the Medes and the Persians. Now, this is what the vision says. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last, right? Now, we might be we might be excused for assuming that this would be talking about Babylon, right? But for some reason, in God's, in God's prophetic book, Babylon was pretty much finished. <laughs> and so it wasn't talking about Babylon. Now, how do you know that? How do I know that? Is, just, is this just my opinion? No, look down in verse 20. Because just like the other ch chapters, we have a vision and then we have an explanation, right? The vision in Daniel chapter 8 goes from verse 1 to 14. The explanation picks up in verse 15 and goes to the end of the chapter. So in verse 20, we read this explanation. The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of what? Media and Persia, or the Medes and Persians. So here we find right away we have an understanding. God is doing something similar as he's done before. He's beginning with the, about the time of the prophet, and he is continuing down through the history of these kingdoms, he's going to give us additional information. Remember we talked about the repeat and enlarge principle in these prophecies. They cover the same time period, but then they always give more information towards the end of time, which is what we're interested in, right? And that's what God even says. These prophecies are for the end of time, for the last days. So we continue, and this is how it continues. He says, "'As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west,' across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So here you have a ram with two horns. They're the kings of Media and Persia, right? These two empires that have united to conquer the provinces and eventually to conquer the kingdom of Babylon. Um, the, now you have a, a male goat, a he-goat, the King James says, that is flying. It's, it's fast. Well, what came in Daniel chapter 7? What came after, after Media and Persia? What kingdom came next? Greece. You remember how it was, what animal represented it? Was it a slow animal? It was a leopard, right? And a leopard that had four wings. Fast, flying. And here you have a goat, a he-goat, a male goat, which is flying. It has a notable horn between its eyes. Again, we turn to the explanation in verse 21. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece, and it says, verse 21, continuing, the large horn that is between his eyes is the what? The first king. Now, some people have criticized the Bible, and they've said, look, Philip was the first king of Greece. Alexander wasn't, and um, so the Bible here is inaccurate. Well, listen, friends, it's one thing to say, hmm, how can I explain this? 
Um, is there a difference between a nation and an empire? Would you agree that there's a difference between Greece, when it, which Philip did, he, he, he collected the, the states that make up the Greek nation, he united them together. Is there a difference between doing that and then expanding to overthrow the Medo-Persian Empire? Yeah, there's a difference, okay? And here we're talking about the succession from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. So you would expect the first king to be the one that actually overthrew the Medes and the Persians. In fact, Alexander the Great was that first king. And we remember that it was on the Battle of Arbella in 331 uh, BC. 331 BC, the Battle of Arbella, Darius III had over a million soldiers on the battlefield. Alexander the Great had 50,000. But Alexander the Great conquered Darius III. That, that victory in the Battle of Arbella marks the end of what we consider the Medo-Persian Empire. How did he do it? He used methods of warfare that were heretofore unheard of. Speed, agility, small fighting companies. Darius III was still using elephants for battle, large lines of soldiers. Alexander was able to maneuver and and outflank and divide and, and surround and get behind the lines and, and, and completely routed that massive force that Medo-Persia had set out on the field. And so Alexander the Great, I believe, is clearly the, the one who is described by this notable horn and the first king of Greece. And um, we continue on with the vision in verse 8. It says, "...therefore the male grew, grew, grew very great." But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place, in the place of it, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. Now, this is the story. As we look in history, we can see that the Bible actually describes what took place. You know how Alexander the Great became sick. He, he was so distraught at having no more territory left to conquer. Actually, he could have gone beyond the confines of the empires that had already existed. I guess he wanted to go to India and beyond, to Asia, but his soldiers didn't, didn't uh, cooperate. And whether he, drew, he, he died of poisoning or of, uh, of alcohol, it's hard to say, but he was sick on his deathbed, and Alexander, Alexander had no heir. His wife, Roxana, was pregnant, and so he hoped that his child would be a son, and the son would be able to continue on the, the, uh, the family dynasty. Now, this is the way Alexander thought. Alexander said, look, if I leave my empire to one caretaker, it will be fairly easy for them to simply kill my son, kill the heir, and take over the throne themselves. So instead, I am going to divide the power between my generals. Now, again, here's a place where the Bible is sometimes criticized. I think it's, it's fair to say that it's accurate. But there are actually five generals of Alexander. And uh, Alexander divided his empire among the five generals that he had. Um, but very quickly after his death, there was an ensuing struggle, and one of those was eliminated. And so, for all practical purposes, for the rest of the history of the empire of Greece, it would be divided among territories these four generals staked out. Don't you think that's pretty accurate as far as the Bible saying that being divided among his four empire, uh, four generals? Unfortunately, the generals did kill his wife. They did kill the son, 
and um, this was the rest of the short history, relatively short history, of the Greek Empire. His four generals were um, by the names of Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Um, you're probably the most familiar with the Ptolemies, the, the kings of Egypt. That was the southern portion of his empire, and Ptolemy took that, and, um, and um, there was, there's a, a lot of intrigue over the next 150, 160 years um, until the demise of the Greek Empire by Rome. So this is, this is the story so far, and the Bible has accurately predicted what would, took pla- what would take place. Can you agree with me on that? Can you see how the Bible is accurately predicted? Out of one of them, and this, you may want to take note of this, friends, because you'll find some teachers um, are not really careful with this. They will say that out of one of them means one of those generals. But in actuality, Hebrew is very specific. Anyone speak Spanish or another language that has um, gender-specific pronouns? You know what I'm talking about? He or she we know in English, but um, them or it or those type of um, pronouns in English are neuter. We don't, we, don't, we don't have gender attached to them. So we can't see here when it says out of one of them, we can't tell what it's talking about. But the previous verse said they, they, it was divided towards the tor- four winds of heaven, and horns is actually a feminine pronoun, and winds is actually a, 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 a noun, and uh, winds is actually a masculine noun. And when it says here, out of one of them, it's, it's a masculine pronoun. You understand what I'm saying? So it's basically saying out of one of the four winds, there came another power, all right? So you don't have to have a direct succession out of one of those other empires. Some critics and some scholars have... have um, have not very carefully looked at that and have come up with that idea. All right, so Daniel chapter 8 and verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly towards the south and towards the east and towards the glorious land. Now, this is already a little bit familiar because in Daniel chapter 7 we had a little horn, but wait a minute. In Daniel chapter 7, just like Daniel 2, there were four empires, right? There was Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then what? Rome. Well, we just finished talking about Greece in Daniel 8, right? It can't be the same little horn that came after Rome in Daniel chapter 7. Do you understand how it makes sense to, to study these chapters together? To not be just trying to take one passage and try to understand it just... If we just started in Daniel chapter 8, we'd be like, what is he talking about, right? It would be, but we can parallel them. What comes after Greece? We already know, right? Rome comes after Greece. So here this little horn in Daniel chapter 8 is a different little horn, if you please. It's still a power, still a kingdom, and horns were kingdoms in Daniel chapter 7. But it's a different power. It, it has to be Rome. And, and sure enough, did, did Rome expand its territories even farther beyond what Greece had been? Did it go, did it go south? Did it go east? Did it go, what's west anyway? What's the, what's the glorious land? What's that talking about? It's talking about the holy land, right? It's talking about where God's people are, the, the glorious land, the holy land. And so here, the, Rome would, would have this wide sphere of influence. And um, what we find here is that this horn in Daniel chapter 8 it describes Rome in two phases. 
It describes Rome in two phases, and you're going to have to sort of buckle your seatbelts here and, and, and get out your Bibles if you brought them and follow along with me here, because this is, this is a passage that has a lot of details, and I'm going to do my best to show you how I understand it, how I believe that Rome fulfills these verses um, in two phases. Rome had both a pagan phase, which lasted from 168 B.C. all the way to 476 A.D., right? Um, And then it would have a second phase. What kind of phase? That, That combination of church and state phase, which, ironically enough, would still be based right there in Rome. In fact, in the very same citadel, in the very same headquarters, some of the, even the same uh, buildings. You can go, for example, to the, the Pantheon in Rome, and that had been a pagan Roman temple, right? And then it became, guess what? A Christian Roman church, you see? And uh, the Bible actually predicted that this would happen. I want to review with you now that, that parallel. We'll just go over this very, very briefly. That may be too small for a lot of you to see. Can you see it back there? No, I can see it. You can see it on the front row. Thank you. Um, basically, we're just paralleling Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel 8 and 9. And um, we, we see, but I've already sort of verbally described these things. What we see happening here is Rome is taking the place um, of uh, the little horn here is describing Rome, which would have two phases and a Christian Roman Empire, the Papal Roman Empire, would take the place of the Pagan Roman Empire. And just, just for you history buffs, you'll remember that Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor, by the way, um, back in the early 4th century, Constantine decided to move his, his ca- the capital of Rome all the way over to what we would call today Turkey, um, Istanbul. And um, he called it, remember what he called it? Constantinople. And he would make that his capital, where really what he did is he left the bishop of Rome in charge in the city of Rome. And um, eventually, by the, by the early 6th century, by 508, uh, the bishop of Rome would even have the same title that the emperor of Rome had previously had. Does anyone know what that title is? What was the title that the emperor of Rome, like Caesar and Gust, uh, Caesar Augustus and Julius Caesar, and it was Pontifex Maximus, or supreme ruler. This was the title that the Caesars had, the emperors had, and afterwards would be transferred to the bishop of Rome, who would have the title of Pontifex Maximus as well. Very interesting transfer of power. And in fact, there were those who resisted the Christianizing of the Roman Empire, and they resisted the Bishop of Rome being the civil head of what had been the Roman Empire. And you'll remember there was those three tribes, the, 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 the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. They were destroyed, Ostrogoths in 538, as we mentioned earlier, and it was Rome's own armies. Listen to this. Rome's own armies, Justinian, the emperor Justinian, who fought the battles for the Bishop of Rome to make sure that he was able to have that title of Pontifex Maximus. Now read with me Daniel chapter 8. This is just fascinating. Um, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit 
it's a little bit intricate here, but I want us to try to, to read through it, and I hope you can see what happens. Daniel chapter 8, and beginning with verse, where are we now? Verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, and it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast some of the host and of the stars to the ground. And you think that's symbolic? Yes, it's obviously symbolic, right? We've, it's a whole, the whole chapter is symbolic. Who would be the hosts and the stars of, of heaven that would be cast to the ground? Now, could it really take the stars? No. So it's obviously talking about spiritually, these are talking about God's people and the persecution of God's people. Would pagan Rome be a persecuting power? Obviously so. Notice what continues on. He even, he, he says he trampled them. He even, verse 11, exalted himself as high as the who? The prince of the host. Now, if, if the host that he's persecuting are God's people, who's the prince of the host? What, what empire would actually have a hand in killing Jesus? This is the Roman Empire, right? He would even exalt himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast down, truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now, probably the most challenging verse in chapter 8 is verses, uh, verse 11, verse 11 and verse 12. So I, I want you to share with you how I understand these verses. I think it's very, very clear, and I think it's also clear, not just from here, but this, this term uh, daily is brought back again in Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12, and so it's one of the reasons I have this understanding that I'll be explaining to you now. The word daily do you notice it's followed by a word in italics? italics? What's that word? Sacrifices. Now, what does it mean when a word is in italics? It's been supplied or added. Now, this doesn't mean that the translator said, hey, we want to change the Bible, right? <laughs> That's not what they intended to do. They actually just needed that word to have it make sense. You understand? They needed to have a word there in order, in English, for it to make sense. Because this is what the word translated daily means. In the Hebrew, it's the word tamid. And the word tamid in Hebrew just means like, it means like perpetual, ongoing, continuous. Now get this, that, that's, not even a, that's not even a noun, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a descriptive word. And so it doesn't make sense. They're like, they're like reading this, and it says um, in verse, verse 11, he exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the ongoing was taken away. Well, what does that mean, right? You see why the translators had some problem with this? And they said, well, let's look where this word is found elsewhere in the Bible. And what they found was that another place that it's used many times in the Old Testament is when it's talking about the daily sacrifices in the temple, the ones that happened every day, not the ones that people brought when they had sinned, but the ones that happened whether someone brought them or not, right? There were sacrifices for the congregation and so forth every single day. And so they said, let's, in, let's insert the word sacrifices, because that's surely what it must mean. Now, I, ten, I tend to be of the school of thought that that's not exactly what it meant. 
that in fact the Bible here is describing the transition between pagan Rome and papal Rome. Now watch this, okay? What it says is that by him the daily was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. If I understand daily to mean paganism, an ongoing rebellion against God, do you understand? Do you understand that until, until the papal Roman Empire, the vast majority of the world said, we do not like the God of heaven, we do not follow the God of heaven, right? I mean, ever since the Tower of Babel, and I suppose even before the Tower of Babel, that's why there was a flood, right? The vast majority of the world said, God, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to have our own, own religions. We're going to have our own types of sacrifices, human or animal or other things. We're going to have our own debauchery that we call religion. We're going to have these pagan ceremonies and pagan sacrifices. And, and they were very overtly in rebellion against God. All right, you following me on that? After this transition that took place within Rome, this, this part of the world at least, on a grand scale, said, no, we, we're followers of God. You remember? Constantine marched his army through the Tiber River, baptizing them, said, now you're all Christians. Were they all Christians? They still had the same habits and practices and superstitions and rites as they had before. And paganism became baptized and came right into the Christian church. And now it was popular to be a Christian. Everyone was a Christian. The Roman Empire became a Christian empire. Europe became a Christian continent. Do you understand what happened? There's a transition between an overt rebellion against God to a in some ways, it's even more abominable, isn't it? Sure. To say you're followers of Christ, but you're really still pagans. <laughs> this transition was not a good transition. So, and the way I explain this, the way I understand these verses, is describing, listen, just assume if we were to insert the words, instead of daily, just use the idea of pagan Rome. Notice what happens. By him paganism or pagan Rome was taken away. The place of his sanctuary was cast down. Rome's own, own palaces and churches became not pagan but now Christian. Because of transgression, that transgression talked about as transgression or the um, transgression of desolation later on, is talking about the new Rome, which would be a papal Rome, because of this papal Rome, an army was given over to oppose paganism. He cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and practiced, okay? Now, again, that's something that you can study more. We can talk more about. If you have questions, write them down. We can talk more about them. Um, it's, a, it's a challenging passage, but notice with me verse 13, because verse 13 gets the last two verses of the vision, and this is sort of the meat of the, of the prophecy. This is the question that Daniel hears asked in verse 13. How long will the vision be concerning the daily, and again, my understanding of it, that is pagan Rome, and the transgression of desolation, papal Rome, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Again, 
Notice that there are two entities here in the beginning, the daily and the transgression of desolation. And what are they doing? They're trampling the sanctuary and the host underfoot, right? They, they have these, these two sets of two, as you, as, if you would. Now, if we stop right here and ask the question, Daniel just heard someone ask, how long will pagan Rome and papal Rome and its two, two, uh, how long will this little horn and its two phases last? In reality, if God were to answer that forthrightly, wouldn't that sort of tell us when the world's going to end? I mean, I realize papal Rome's empire ended 1798, but that's, it's not as though the church of Rome is no longer, is it? So really, it's, it's, a, it's a question that, that God chooses not to answer, at least not completely directly. This is what he says in verse 14. This is the last verse in the vision, and then we move on to the explanation. He said to me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, Daniel, where is he? Is he having this vision? Where are God's people? Put it that way. They're in Babylon, aren't they? The Babylonian captivity. Where, what condition is the sanctuary in? The temple in Jerusalem. It's destroyed, right? And so when, when Daniel hears these words, under 2,300 days, then the sanctuary would be cleansed, he had to go back and think about the tabernacle that was in Jerusalem. Remember, the tabernacle that God had, been, that God had given His people in the, in the wilderness was designed to teach them about the plan of salvation. It was designed to teach them about the Messiah that was to come, right? That the, the lamb, the, the sacrifices, the, the ceremonies all pointed forward to Jesus who would be the redeemer of the world, the savior of mankind. And after they moved to their final destination of the promised land and in the temple mount in Jerusalem, you remember Solomon's temple had been built. And, and of course, Daniel had grown up in the shadow of Solomon's temple, the most magnificent building that had ever occupied that hilltop. And it was one of the wonders of the world. I mean, the riches of the nations had been poured into Solomon's kingdom, and he had, he had used them to build this amazing edifice to God's glory and God's power. And the temple there was to, again, to point people to the, the Savior that was to come and the salvation that was to come. And then it had all been destroyed. Babylon had marched on the city of Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. It had been, it had been demolished. The gold was plundered. The, the vessels were taken to, to Babylon. We, we read about them in Daniel 5, don't we? Being used in that party. Jerusalem is in ruins. And Daniel has spent his whole life in exile in Babylon. Now, where is the testimony of the Messiah that's to come? Where is the temple that's pointing forward to the, the, the Jesus that's to be sent, the one that's going to save his people, that's going to save us from our sins? Every day as, as Daniel got up, he must have been thinking about the temple in Jerusalem and how it lay in waste, in ruins. In fact, he would open his window and he would pray towards the temple in Jerusalem. But there was no temple there. There were just ruins. 
But he prayed there in hope and in faith that the temple was going to be rebuilt again because the prophecy had said, Jeremiah, his contemporary, the prophet, had said that there would be a, a repatriation of Israel and, and this, 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 uh, this uh, exile in Babylon would not last forever. That, in fact, Jeremiah gave a prophecy that it would last for 70 years. Well, by this time, Belshazzar is the king, and, and Babylon's about to pass away, and Daniel's an old man, and the 70 years are nearly finished. It's been at least 50 or so years. And here he finds this, this, this vision, and he can't understand it. Because Jeremiah said the temple is going to be rebuilt after 70 years, that God's people are going to go back to Jerusalem. Again, there would be a light telling the world about the Messiah that was to come. Again, there would be God's people sharing the truth with the nations. Again, they would be able to be a light on a hill, and the temple would be daily testifying of the Lamb that would take away the sins of the earth. And yet, here he finds that there's, there's going to be Babylon... Well, he doesn't even have that. That's pretty much finished. Medo-Persia, there's going to be Medo-Persian Empire. He's not told how long that's going to last. But after Medo-Persia, there's going to be what? A Greek Empire. That'll take a while. And then after that, there's going to be Rome, another empire. And it's going to be a persecuting power. And if he remembers back to Daniel chapter 7, remember that time, times, the dividing of times? Perhaps Daniel even knew that wasn't just literal time. That was actually 1260 years. That's a long time. And then, after that, after Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and the little horn of Daniel 7, the Antichrist, the, 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 the transgression of desolation, of the, after all of that, then the sanctuary would be cleansed? Can you imagine what's going through Daniel's mind? God, where is the testimony of the Messiah to come? Your people are in, in exile. Your temple's in ruins. And in fact, when we get to the explanation in Daniel chapter 8, I mean, it's all pretty simple. It's all, I mean, it's all Babylon. I mean, we don't have Babylon here. I keep saying that. But Medo-Persia, we have Greece, we have Rome. Rome isn't described by name, but it's pretty clear that follows it, right? We, we can see that in Daniel 7 and 2, and, and we can see those characteristics here as I, as I ran through. Notice with me the explanation in verse 26. He gets down to that 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And this is what the angel tells Daniel. Under 2,000 I'm sorry, in the vision of the evenings and mornings, that's the time, that's 2,000, because in the Hebrew it actually says in 2,000 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be, be cleansed. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is, what does he say? True. Now that's not much of an explanation, is it? <laughs> Daniel, you heard right. The 2,300 evenings and mornings, that's true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And at that point, Daniel was so overwhelmed by shock and grief. 
according to his own words, he passed out. Notice verse 27, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Daniel is horrified. Daniel is devastated. He cannot reconcile what God said to him in this vision and what God has said to Jeremiah in his prophecies. Could it be that Jerusalem will lay in ruins until all of these empires have passed? Daniel's worst nightmare, friends, is not something happening to himself or his family. Daniel's worst nightmare is the Messiah being delayed for millennia. For the testimony of, of the temple being silenced while empires rose and fell. Daniel is horrified. It makes him literally sick. And he says he was sick for days and I arose and afterward I arose and went about the king's business and I was astonished by the vision. But no one understood it. What did they not understand? They couldn't understand how it would take that long for the temple to be restored, for the sanctuary to be cleansed. Now, I wish I could tell you that the next day, Gabriel came back and said, Daniel, let me, let me help you with this. I got a little bit ahead of myself here. I wish I could tell you that Gabriel came back the next day and, and he said, Daniel, I want to make, make you feel better. Actually, that's where Daniel chapter 8 ends. And Daniel chapter 9 picks up. Do you know how long it's been? Fifteen years later. Now, I suppose Daniel might have said, surely, God, you must have meant, you must have been 2,300 literal days, right? I mean, 2,300 literal days, how long is that? That's only about seven years or something like that, right? Not too far, not too long. Well, 15 years later, you think Daniel was still thinking that could have been literal days? Fifteen years later. By now, in Daniel chapter 9, it's the first year of Darius, the king of Ahasuerus. The son of Ahasuerus, sorry. So 15 years later, Daniel says it couldn't have been literal days. It must be symbolic time. In Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow night. We'll talk more about how a day equals a year in symbolic Bible prophecy. There are multitudes of biblical evidence that point towards this, but Daniel no doubt was aware of Ezekiel's prophecies and Jeremiah's prophecies and some of the others that used a day for a year in symbolic prophecy. So that wasn't and now in Daniel chapter 9, he says it couldn't have been literal time. It must have been symbolic time. It must have been 2,300 years ahead. What is he talking about? Now pick up. We're going to end. We're going to end here with just looking at a few verses in Daniel chapter 9. This is where we're going to have to start tomorrow. We're out of time. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. Notice with me 
the links between Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. We'll, we'll cover them in more detail tomorrow night. In the first year of Darius, the king of Ahasuerus, uh, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of Medes, who was made king over the realms of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the, prophet, uh, by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So what is, what is Daniel doing in the first verse of Daniel chapter 9? He is studying prophecy, right? He's a prophet, but he is studying the prophet Jeremiah's book. And he says, God, you said to Jeremiah that Jerusalem be desolate for 70 years. What's this 2,300 part about, right? He's trying to understand it. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make a request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Listen to what he prayed. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity we have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. To the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those afar off, and all the countries to whom you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. What is, what is Daniel doing? He is pleading with God and he's praying a prayer of repentance and confession. Why? Because in Daniel's heart is a great fear. The fear is that even though God told Jeremiah 70 years, the people of Israel were still so impenitent, unrepentant, that they would have to stay in captivity for many more years. There is no way you can read Daniel chapter 9 and come to any other conclusion. Notice with me a few other verses. We'll skip through them. We can't read them all. Notice with me a couple other verses. Yes, verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and departed um, so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us. Notice with me, all this disaster, verse 13, has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. Um, notice, let's, just, let's look down according to verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousnesses, righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to those around us. Now, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine, what does he say? On your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of all our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your sake, my God, for your city and your people are called 
by your name. So friends, what Daniel is doing here as he prays, he is interceding in behalf of his people. One of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. A prayer, by the way, prayed by a righteous man. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of how Daniel is one of the few characters in the Bible of whom no, nothing wrong is ever recorded? There's only a couple. Of course, Jesus. Some would say Joseph. He had some pride there in his visions or dreams there with his brothers. But there's a few, Job and others. But Daniel's never recorded. Now, I believe he, he did wrong, right? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I think that included Daniel. But the Bible records nothing wrong that he did. And yet he is not sitting. He's not sitting there reading his Bible like some Christians and saying, yeah, disobedience, mm-hmm. Um, that sin, uh-huh. Uh, Daniel's reading his Bible and he's allowing the Word of God to bring conviction to his own heart. He doesn't say they have sinned. He says we have sinned, right? He includes himself in the rebellion, the transgression of God's people. He asks for forgiveness. He begs, he pleads for forgiveness. What an amazing testimony, an amazing example. I wonder sometimes, as we, as we bring this to a close tonight, I wonder sometimes, if I had been, if you had been in Babylon, concerned as Daniel was that the transgressions of Israel were keeping God from fulfilling His promises, that maybe Jerusalem would be desolate for many, many more centuries, and maybe the temple would be still in ruins, and the testimony of God's coming Messiah would be silenced for decades. Would you and I have had that same heart of humble confession and repentance? You think God would want us to have that? You think we need that? You think we need to spend more time studying our Bibles to say, Lord, what would you have me to do and where, where is the sin that I can confess rather than studying our Bibles to show other people are wrong or even just to understand doctrines? You know, Daniel gives an example of someone whose heart is beating with the heartbeat of God. A sorrow for sin and a desire for God's honor and God's glory. I don't know about you, but I want to have that kind of an experience. Daniel's worst nightmare was the Messiah would be so long delayed. In Daniel 9, Gabriel, the same one that explained 15 years earlier the vision in Daniel chapter 8, Gabriel is sent back to set Daniel's mind at ease. That's what we're going to be studying tomorrow night. We're going to see how Daniel 9 predicts Jesus. And in doing so, it explains what had Daniel so upset. Tonight, I want to ask the Lord to give me a heart like his, a heart like Daniel's. Is that your desire? You want that experience? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, tonight we just thank you that we can study your word. Lord, there are some things that, that we need to understand better, maybe 
maybe we still have questions on, I just want to pray that your Spirit would do one thing for us tonight. Even if we don't understand everything there is to know about prophecy, Lord, help us to understand your love for us, your desire to save us from our sins. Help us, I pray, to have a heart like the heart of Daniel, not looking and seeing what we can find fault in others around us, but, Lord, in fact, taking their taking personal responsibility for things we should have done to help them in the first place, taking personal responsibility in, in prayer and of repentance and confession, humility, just humbling our hearts before our Savior. Lord Jesus, you said that we can fall on the rock, Jesus Christ, and be broken. And that's what we want. We want to have that experience. As we continue studying, as we, as we seek to understand more tomorrow night of Daniel chapter 9 and, and how it unlocks Daniel chapter 8 and the 2,300-day prophecy, I pray that you will open our minds to not just understand the truths of prophecy, but understand better the God of prophecy, to love you more, to hate sin that separates us from you more. And one day very soon, Lord, we can see you face to face. This is our desire and our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.